Welcome to today's edition of the SSPX Podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. Today, we're speaking with Mr. Gabriel Sanchez, assistant editor of Angelus Press. He has a great depth of knowledge about the Eastern Catholic Church, and together we will dissect the latest news about what could be the greatest schism in the Catholic Church in the past 1,000 years. We'll talk about this series of events, as well as about a thousand years of history in the next 30 minutes on the SSPX podcast. Welcome to another edition of the SSPX podcast. Talking today with the assistant editor of Angelus Press, Mr. Gabriel Sanchez. Hello, Gabe. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing well. So, uh, Gabriel is the assistant editor, like I said, of the Angelus uh, magazine. Also, Gabe, you, you edit uh, our books and content for the sspx.org website and uh, a few other things, right? Correct. Yeah. I also do uh, some of the other publications or just news alerts that we put out. I also do that. And then on the side, I'm also an attorney. So the main reason I wanted to talk to you today was not about uh, your life as an attorney, although that would be interesting to explore sometime, but uh, your background and your knowledge about the Eastern churches. And there have been, there's been news in the past uh, week, two weeks, about what many are calling the greatest schism in the church since the year 1000. So uh, could you give our listeners a little bit of background information about yourself and, and uh, your experiences with the Eastern Church? Oh, sure. So uh, despite having a Hispanic last name that comes from my father, <laughs> I'm actually half Slavic. And so I actually grew up not as a Latin Catholic or a Roman Catholic, but actually what's known as a Greek Catholic, not the sense of that I am Greek or that my um, family background is Greek, but in terms of our ritual, which comes from Byzantium, and in terms of our orientation, the term Greek Catholic is applied. And more specifically, I am a member canonically of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is one of the largest Eastern Catholic churches out there. There are several, I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of them. There's the Maronites in Lebanon. There's the Melkites also in the Middle East. Uh, there are some smaller ones out there, such as the Russian Greek Catholic Church. But basically, my, the ritual that we use in our sort of spiritual and theological heritage comes from Byzantium. In a lot of ways, we resemble externally uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which, as you know, has been broken away from the Catholic Church for many centuries now. When you want to date the schism sort of depends on a lot of different factors. A lot of people use 1054, but the schism wasn't sort of one neat little break. It was actually a series of ruptures, sure. unions, and so forth for the course of centuries. Anyways... That's my background, and so I obviously have a lot of interest, not only in the lineage and heritage of my own church, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, but also with the separated Eastern, Catholic, or I'm sorry, the Eastern Orthodox churches, which again, in ritual and spirituality, we do resemble, but they are out of communion with Rome, and therefore are no longer part of the Catholic Church proper. Wow. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are the same way. I'm cradle to today traditional Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic, and so have not had a lot of exposure to the Eastern churches. When I was growing up and I would hear terms like, you know, one holy Catholic, and that's all right, there's one church and it's the Roman church and, and there's the Pope in Rome. And then there's these other Catholics out East and they do this other stuff. And I'm not really sure if they like the Pope or not. So that's kind of my background. Uh, and since working with you and talking with you, I've, I've learned quite a bit. But before we go into the news uh, that, that prompted me wanting to chat with you, and I know <laughs> summing up about a thousand years of history in a few minutes is next to impossible, but 
what is it about the the Eastern Church? How do they interact with Rome? Uh, and are there separate churches? Or is there one main leader? Could you kind of give us some information on that? Right. So when I use the term Eastern Catholic or Eastern Churches, it's a very broad term because there's actually over 20 separate autonomous or sui juris uh, Eastern Catholic churches out there. Some of them, like mine, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, follows the Byzantine rite. So, for example, the Melkites, Ukrainian Catholics, the Ruthenian Catholics. But others, such as the Maronites, for example, or the uh, Cyril Malabar Church, they have their own specific ritual, which is completely different than you know the Roman rite that you follow or the Byzantine rite that I follow. And what happened, of course, over the course of Christian history, even um, during the first millennium, is that due to theological, political, social disagreements, various churches broke away or fell away from communion with Rome at various points in time. In the last thousand years, um, there has been more effort given to try to bring some of these communions back into um, full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. And so over a course of centuries, you have a, a, a situation where, for example, my church in 1596, um, the bishops of Ky you know, what is now um, present-day Ukraine um, in and around Kiev, they petitioned to Rome in 1596 at what's called the Union of Brest to restore communion with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, mainly because they had been uh, closely associated with Constantinople, which, as you know, fell in 1453 to the Turks. Right. And a lot of the bishops in, in and around Kiev did not want to come under the thumb of the Russian Orthodox Church and, the, and what eventually became the Moscow Patriarchate. And so they rejoined communion with the Catholic Church. And then a couple of centuries later, the Melkites, who are most closely resemble the Antiochian Orthodox Church in the Middle East, they also uh, restored communion. And so that's where you get all these different churches. We don't have one leader um, overseeing all of them. My, my particular church, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, we have Patriarch Svetoslav in uh, Kiev. He is the leader of our church, and we have about 5 million members worldwide. Very interesting. So when, when I hear terms, you know, split or, or breaking communion, again, from, from my Western, you know, Roman Catholic perspective, I think of you know, like Martin Luther, where he breaks away from Rome. Um, but the, the, the main difference that, well, <laughs> there are obviously a lot of difference. And I, this is a really clumsy analogy, and I'm, I'm apologizing for this already. But the, the Lutheran church is theologically very different. Uh, and also, Martin Luther did not want to follow the Pope. Whereas with the Eastern churches, again, if we can kind of lump them all together, uh, there were there were some theological differences, but it wasn't as, as wide. It wasn't as, as a great split. Um, and so... What, what divides the, the Eastern churches and, and, and the Roman church is, is very minimal in comparison. Is that right? I would agree with that. And I think one of the problems that we tend to have when we're talking about the Eastern, the separated Eastern churches, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, is that because for various social and political reasons, there has been a tendency at times for both Rome and for some of the Eastern Orthodox churches to sometimes exaggerate the degree of difference between us. And I think that's one of the I would say very beautiful things about the Eastern Catholic churches, like my, my own Ukrainian Catholic church, because what we're trying to demonstrate is that we can be fully and, and true, we can be fully true to our heritage, our Byzantine heritage, in terms of our ritual, our theology, our spirituality, while also maintaining full and absolute communion with Rome and accepting all the universal doctrines and teachings that the entire universal Catholic church holds true. You don't have to be split from Rome just because we have a different ritual or we might have a little bit of a different theological emphasis. Um, some of the listeners out there may recognize my name from a number of articles I have written for the Answer 
Angeles Magazine, where I do discuss some of the differences between um, you know, the Eastern and, and Western churches on certain points like purgatory. It's not that the Eastern churches necessarily reject purgatory. They just have a little bit of a different theological nuance. And one of the geniuses, I think, of the Roman Catholic Church or the universal church is that when we do promulgate dogmas, you know, the dogmas are promulgated in such a way that they do leave room open for uh, different points of emphasis and different points of interpretation. It's not just sort of a hard, ready, and fast. This is absolutely what you have to you know, believe. Yes, we all believe in purgatory, but the nature of purgatory and, 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 and how purgatory is sort of understood maybe in a slightly more legalistic way in the West as opposed to a more kind of transformative way in the East, these aren't in conflict with each other. These are things that, can, that we can resolve and talk about freely and speculate about. Right. And so that's, that's where you know, we come in, uh, come into the picture here. Not to get too too lost in the details, but maybe one example would be the Dormition of Our Lady, for instance. The East, from at least what I remember you told me, uh, the East does, does not hold that she actually passed away, that she died, but that she she slept and then was, was raised into heaven. Uh, and, and the Roman Catholic Church does not emphasize that as much. But in the East, there's a whole feast, I believe— Correct me if I'm wrong. Called the Dormition of Our Lady. Is that right? Correct. So it's yeah, same date, August fifteenth. So you know what you call the Assumption, we call Dormition. Though these things are interchangeable. Actually, there's a, um, a Romanian Orthodox Church not that far off from where I live that's actually called Assumption. So sometimes too, when you hear Orthodox say, "Oh well, you know, we believe different things because they believe in the Assumption and we believe in the Dormition," the truth of the matter is, is that it's the same feast. We're honoring the same event at the end of Our Lady's life and her being assumed into heaven. It's just that there's a slightly different nuance on both sides of the divide, and that's perfectly acceptable. Right. And and I, I think also from, I'm sorry, we're not getting to the main point here, but this is so fascinating. I think for many many of us Catholics today, many traditional Catholics, there's there's such an, an aversion to anything that, that smacks of ecumenism or, well, you can be different. Well, no, this is this is what we do. Uh, that we may lose sight of the fact that that differences, especially with the Eastern Church and and the Western Church in and of themselves, especially the the minor differences or the different emphasis like we're talking about, uh, are not necessarily a bad thing. That that's been going on like like we've been talking about for almost a thousand years, and and communion with Rome among the various Eastern churches has been going on for centuries. Even even while we've been talking, Gabe, some of the some of the little hairs in the back of my neck are going. Well, this sounds like ecumenism. It's not. It's actually. It's actually the, the right way to look at things. I, I would agree. And I think one thing that everybody needs to understand, and I mean, Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox need to understand this too, is that when the whole church is united, I mean, it's a mansion with many rooms, many different uh. points of emphasis, different liturgical traditions. Even in the West, for the first thousand years of Christianity, had many different uh, liturgical traditions that rose up, all very reverent, all very traditional. But again, depending on where you lived and, and sort of the local culture, you would have, you know, unique feasts and so forth. And it's really more of a byproduct of the printing press and, of course, modern technology that so much has been homogenized because we can just have access to everything right away and, and very easily. But if you look at the first thousand years of Christianity, especially, you see a lot of cross-pollinations where, you know, feasts that might have began in the East, they make their way West and vice versa, and a lot of theological sharing back and forth. And, you know, not so much absolutism and saying like, well, you know, to be Catholic, you must be Roman or to be a true Easterner, you have to be 100 percent Byzantine and can't look to anything that the Latins do. That, that's that's a very myopic and I, and I think very problematic way of thinking. And, and I guess just as a, a minor illustration, uh, and this is, again, not perfect by any means, but 
you know, for many of our listeners who may have gone down to Silver City, New Mexico, for instance, and seeing the Benedictines down there, you know, their, their mass is slightly different. Uh, the, the canon is the same. All, all of the vital elements are there, but uh, there are certain prayers that are different because of honoring St. Benedict, etc. Uh, and it's just more that way in, in the Eastern Church, but the, but the core of our faith is, is there. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, any of your listeners who've never been to a Byzantine liturgy, I would definitely invite them to go and, you know, get a booklet, follow along with it, and you will see these commonalities between the traditional Roman Rite Mass and the Byzantine liturgy, even entire prayers and phrases that are that are found in both. But you'll also see, again, you know, some unique differences. I would argue that, you know, the Latin Mass is much more Christological uh, in its in its orientation and you know, I have to keep in mind that the, the Mass of St. Gregory came out of a time after the sort of Christological controversies had ceased, and therefore I think there's much more rich Christology there. But if you look at the Byzantine liturgy, for example, you see a very rich Trinitarianism there. It's mm-hmm. not that these elements are missing from one or the other. It's just that, again, you see different points of emphasis, and there's a real beauty there that I, I really would encourage listeners to um, go out and appreciate. That's fascinating. Well, we, we've already spent some time Going over, uh, going over the Eastern churches as, as a whole. So, to to the point of the topic today, you worked on on an article for the uh, for SSPX.org uh, about this this schism, about this rupture between Moscow and Constantinople. I'm sure I'll have a lot of follow up questions because uh, even after reading the article, I, I have some questions on it myself. But it's basically a split between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople. Uh, Beyond that, what is what is it that is uh, important about this that that we need to know? So after after the schism finally settles down, or I should say, really cements itself after the Council of Florence in the 15th century, Constantinople became the sort of the, the primary uh, apostolic see in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Patriarch of Constantinople would hold himself out as being the ecumenical patriarch, not to say ecumenical in the sense of ecumenism, but he's sort of like the universal patriarch over all the Orthodox Church. Now, some people misconstrue this and say, well, he's like the Orthodox Pope. Not really, but he does have a sort of primacy in the Orthodox Church. Maybe like an oh. older brother type status, probably crazy right. again, but... Correct. Something of that nature. And and I just want to, and we can't really go into it today, but the question of primacy in the Orthodox Church has been a fraught question since, since the schism. In other words, you have some, like the Russian Orthodox Church, who say, well, primacy is just a primacy of honor. It doesn't come with any power or spe- special authority. Whereas Constantinople says, yes, it is a primacy of honor, but with that primacy of honor come certain rights and responsibilities that the ecumenical patriarch is vested with. Now, this gets us to where we are right now. So you have the situation here in Ukraine, or the territory which we now call Ukraine. For most of the, since the baptism of Kievan Rus and the baptism of St. Vladimir, Ukraine, or, the, or what was once known as Kievan Rus, that fell under the jurisdiction of the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople. Now, after the Constantinople was sacked by the Turks, in the course of centuries, Constantinople lost almost all of its practical power and influence over the remaining Orthodox churches in the East. And so what eventually happened is that the territory now known as Ukraine came under the thumb of the Russian Orthodox Church and more specifically came under the power of the Moscow Patriarchate. Now, the Moscow Patriarchate is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. It was only established a few hundred years ago and actually was abolished in 1700 and wasn't reestablished until the beginning of the 20th century. 
Now, what, what's happened, of course, on a geopolitical level is that Ukraine is starting to assert more and more independence from Russia or the Russian state. Right. And part of that independence has, been, has come with a call in Ukraine for an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church that is um, autocephalous, in other words, self-governing and is disconnected from the Moscow Patriarchate. Constantinople has taken the position that since historically Ukraine was under its control, it has the right and authority to grant autocephaly or self-governing um, status to the church in Ukraine, whereas Moscow is saying, absolutely not, the church in Ukraine is underneath us, and therefore this is a incursion on our territory, and that has led the Moscow Patriarch to say, uh, or to order all Russian Orthodox that they cannot receive sacraments any further from any priest who falls under the ecumenical patriarchate, and that would include Greek Orthodox Christians, even here in the United States. Their, their priests and bishops are not supposed to be dispensing sacraments now to Russian Orthodox faithful. Okay, so so the the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, they are basically saying that they they, they want to, to keep control over over Ukraine and all of the what you just said the the, the other members who are underneath them. Um, and Constantinople is saying, well, that's fine. That's that's what you've been doing for the last maybe maybe century or less. But this is this is what we've always been doing, and so we're going to take control back. Is that roughly fair? Well, that, that control back so much as to say that, that Ukraine can now, the Ukrainian Orthodox should be able to govern themselves. In other okay. words, they, they, they can elect their own bishops, they can appoint their own you know, hierarchy to whatever um, diocese or sees that they set up in there. And you have to keep in mind, too, is that as I was uh, recalling the history of my own church, Ukrainian Catholic Church, again, one of the reasons that the Ukrainian Catholic Church came into existence was to avoid political control from Moscow, to avoid political control from the Russians. And for most of the history of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, it's been a very sorrowful history of being persecuted by the Russian state and the Russian Orthodox. I think I make mention of it in the article, but people have to realize in 1946, almost all of the hierarchy of the Ukrainian Catholic Church was either murdered, tortured, or imprisoned. And a fake uh, synod was staged by the Russian Orthodox Church and the Soviet Union, which effectively abolished the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And up until 1989, or thereabouts, uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church was the largest suppressed uh, religious group in the world. Wow. I, and I think you, you told me at one point, very roughly speaking, uh, that maybe an easy way for uh, Latin Catholics, Roman Catholics to identify who are the quote-unquote good guys and bad guys in this is, uh, generally speaking, anything with Orthodox is, is a little more suspect, particularly the Russian Orthodox Church. They're, they're more of a political arm of... of Russia as it is today, uh, and and most most of the churches that have the word Catholic in them are are, are pretty good. Is that is that right? I, I would say yeah. Generally speaking, I mean. The Russian Orthodox Church is very problematic for a lot of reasons, and one of the biggest reasons has been, and this is true of the entire history of Russian Orthodoxy for the last thousand years, is that they basically have been a vassal church of the Russian state, and they still are to this day. Well, there's a lot of propaganda out there about sort of the return of Holy Russia and how Christianity is booming in, in Russia and how wonderful things are. The on-the-ground reality is that Russian church attendance is very small. Abortion rates are abysmally high in Russia. Russia as a country is depopulating. And 
And the Russian Orthodox Church, because it's so intertwined with the state, really has not had the power, the authority, or even the independent wherewithal to stand up and say, some of these things are really bad, and to criticize the Russian state, especially when they're engaged in aggression. And with the situation in Ukraine, again, because of the political fallout in Ukraine and Russia's incursions into East Ukraine to try to take back the territory, they've sort of tied up ecclesiastical politics in all of this. And I think for Ukrainian Greek Catholics, you know, this is a very worrisome issue because they've been directly persecuted, especially in Crimea, which Russia seized, which Russia seized. But also they're very concerned, too, because as long as the Ukrainian Orthodox churches are under the thumb of Moscow, the possibility of reunion with the Ukrainian Orthodox and the creation of a single Ukrainian church that is in communion with the Roman Catholic Church uh, will be all but impossible. So that was that was actually where I was going to be going next. And, and that is so this is. Do you see this as more of a political move or a religious move or a theological, I guess? It's a little bit of both. I mean, again, I mean, the, the Orthodox can sort of tend to their own ship in a, in a little bit in, in terms of how they want to structure themselves. But I do believe that the historical and canonical argument for an independent, self-governing Ukrainian Orthodox Church is much stronger than the assertions that Moscow was making. Now, again, why I want to reiterate why this is important is because if you go all the way back to the early part of the 20th century, uh, the leader of the Ukrainian uh, Greek Catholic Church, Metropolitan Andrei Shiptitsky, his vision was to unite the Ukrainian Orthodox and the Ukrainian Greek Catholics, again, into a single Ukrainian church in communion with Rome. And actually, uh, for our listeners, I think this will be interesting. You know, Metropolitan Andrei had a very good and close relationship with St. Pius X, and it was St. Pius X who actually gave Metropolitan Andrei the mandate to not only try to reunite the Orthodox in Ukraine, but also to begin setting up uh, what is today known as the Russian Greek Catholic Church in Russia, again, for the purpose of taking Russian Orthodox, allowing them to keep their ritual, their heritage, their theology, but bringing them into full communion with Rome. Unfortunately, World War I, World War II happened, the Soviet Revolution, and the Russian Greek Catholic Church, which was starting to grow during that period of time, like the Ukrainian Catholic Church, was effectively wiped out. Wow. So the, the Russian Orthodox Church, are they basically the, the largest church of the East and, and the most powerful? They're certainly the most powerful. So yeah, when we speak of the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's really probably better to speak of Eastern Orthodox churches, like you have the Eastern Orthodox Church in Greece and Serbia and Romania and Russia. But yes, Russia is certainly the most powerful. And that's one reason why right. Ukraine is so important, because if Ukraine breaks away from, from Moscow and forms their own self-governing um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, it's going to lower uh, the Russian Orthodox Church's overall worldwide numbers and probably put a little bit of a dent in its influence. But as it currently stands, again, with the backing of the Russian state, the Russian Orthodox Church does have very strong influence over some of the other smaller Eastern Orthodox churches, especially in uh, Slavic lands and even in the Middle East. So you have a crystal ball on your desk. Give me two scenarios. What's what's the best case scenario here, and what's the worst case scenario? I, maybe not worst because we could we could we could go on all day about what's the worst case scenario here. But realistically, uh, what is what is a fear regarding this split that you have in your mind, or how could this be solved if we're looking at it in an optimistic way? Well, I mean, obviously for the Orthodox, any sort of internal rupture for them is going to be very problematic because they have had such a difficult time over the course of the last thousand years sort of getting everybody on the same page. I mean, they, they speak very 
highly of synodality and collegiality and coming together and resolving issues. But the reality is, is that they've had a very difficult time doing that because of these sort of political canonical uh, rifts that do break out. I think from a Catholic perspective, again, uh, best case scenario, like I said, is the creation of a self-governing Ukrainian Orthodox Church that the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church can have good cordial relations with, and again, eventually build towards Metropolitan Andre's dream, which was a single Ukrainian church in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which would be you know, an excellent uh, step towards healing the Great Schism. Now, as far as worst case scenarios go, I mean, it's possible that this this move will, you know, inspire the you know the Russian state to be more aggressive in Ukraine, which could be very bad for Ukrainian Catholics. I think this may also uh, lead to a situation where it will be very difficult for the Roman Catholic Church to have any positive relationships with the Eastern Orthodox Church because it will be perceived as picking sides. In other words, if we try to keep good ties with Constantinople, right. the Russians will say that we're illicitly backing them up, and vice versa. So it puts us in kind of a very uh, difficult and precarious position. In in the past years, uh, and, and I guess it's difficult to to really judge this because there's 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 been a lot of changes within the Roman Catholic Church, obviously in the past century. But in in recent history, uh, has the Roman Catholic Church and, and and the popes had more of cordial relations with the Orthodox churches, the you know Russian, Serbian, Greek Orthodox, or the the Greek Catholic and churches in, in Constantinople and so forth. I mean, certainly relations have improved, but it, it has not come without some difficulties. So, for example, at Vatican II, um, some of the you know ecumenical movers and shakers at Vatican II really wanted the Russian Orthodox to participate in the council or at least be there as observers. And unfortunately, that caused a lot of uproar because, one, at the time when they're inviting Russian Orthodox to come uh, attend the council, uh, Cardinal Yosef Slippe, who, uh, who took over the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church after Metropolitan Andrei died, he was sitting in a Soviet gulag. And so you can obviously understand that there were Ukrainian bishops, Ukrainian Catholic bishops, who were very upset by the idea of Russian Orthodox bishops attending while their patriarch is sitting in a, <laughs> is sitting in a gulag. Um, also, you know, there was a very famous meeting between Patriarch Athenagoras of Constantinople and Paul VI that happened about 50 years ago. Well, one of the reasons why that meeting needed to take place is because Constantinople was very upset that they thought that the Vatican had basically done an end run around them, invited the Russian Orthodox into come to come participate in Vatican II, and left them sitting out in the cold. So, I mean, there's been a lot of politics going on because it just it seems that the closer we draw to Constantinople, as far as trying to build cordial relations, it irks the Russians, and when we try to draw closer to the Russians, it irks not just Constantinople. Constantinople, but also Greek Catholics, especially living in Ukraine, who are like, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church treats us like dirt. They persecuted us. How can you sit there and 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 back them up and be friendly with them while effectively throwing us under the bus? Uh, I'm I'm sitting here listening to this. My head's spinning, and I'm glad I'm not uh, in any position of authority to make any kind of judgments or calls on on this because the chess games and dominoes here are are impossible to predict. And and I, I agree, and it's. You know, I, I really think, though, that not only the Ukrainian question isn't going to get answered anytime soon, but I really believe because of the longstanding disagreements between Constantinople and Moscow, I think this rift, which is effectively a schism at this point, I think it will last quite a while. And, that, and that's really problematic. And I think this does illustrate one of the tragedies of the schism, because, you know, if the church was truly united, if we were all together, you know, in Constantinople and, and, and Moscow had a, uh, a canonical argument or a territorial argument, who would they appeal to? Well, they would appeal to Rome. Right. And that's, right. you know, that's 
was, you know, for the first thousand years of the church, that was one of the essential roles of the Roman pontiff was when patriarchs and autonomous churches had disagreements, you know, the, 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 uh, the Pope in Rome was, you know, somewhat like the Supreme Court is, you know, as, to use a loose analogy. He mm-hmm. was there to resolve these final differences. And I think today, and this is probably what irks some Eastern Orthodox or makes them suspicious of the papacy, we tend to want to view the Pope as less like the Supreme Court and more like the president, president of the United States where he's sort of micromanaging everything. And, and that's really, you know, I, that's a whole other topic, but that is one reason why the Eastern Orthodox Church does tend to be a little bit suspicious of centralized Roman power. But in a situation like this, you really do need a third party to arbitrate between these disagreements between Constantinople and, and Moscow. And unfortunately, orthodoxy lacks that right now. And, and you sort of answered my kind of my final question, and that is, so you don't see any hope of the, the, the two sides coming to the table and, and say, for instance, going to Pope Francis or, you know, say it's 20 years from now, you know, whoever the next pontiff is and, and having him arbitrate that. I mean, you don't see any, any hope of that. This is just going to be a, a squabble that's going to last until... Who knows? <laughs> I mean, you know, never say never and everything's on God's good time. But I mean, I, I think that there again, I don't want to sort of sit there and, and, and smile over orthodoxy's internal woes. But this may be the type of event that gives a wake up call within the orthodox communion to say, you know, this is why unity was so important. This is why we do need the papacy, even though the Orthodox will constantly say, we don't need the Pope in Rome, we don't have, need anything to do with him. I mean, this is a situation where, yes, yes, you very much do need yeah. the Pope in yeah. Rome um, to, to mediate this dispute and, and to come to a, a peaceful, brotherly, and, and loving resolution to this. And I don't see that happening independent of, like I said, a, a third party here. And I, I believe God has uh, vested uh, that type of authority in the Pope of Rome, and, and that's what they really need right now. But, you know, we'll see what happens. And the saddest thing is that thousands and thousands of souls are, are caught up in the middle of this. Well, it's not just thousands, it's millions. I mean, if you think about the populations of, True. you know, if you think about the populations of Russia, but also, again, the ecumenical patriarch has jurisdiction over not just Greek Orthodox, but also um, other Orthodox churches in the diaspora, uh, specifically in the West. And now you have situations, even here in my small city of Grand Rapids, we have five Orthodox churches, and on one side of town, there's the Russian Orthodox Church. On the other side of town, there's a Greek Orthodox Church. But now people who go to those churches can't go to the other one for wow. you know, Eucharist or baptism or anything. Wow, that's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's much more of a big deal than, uh, than I think a lot of us who— our, our Roman Catholics give it credit for, uh, like 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 we talked about at the beginning. We we tend to be we Roman Catholics tend to be more myopic on this stuff, and you know we have the Pope and the bishops, and this is what we do. And uh, no, there's there's a whole another world that's still within the Catholic Church out there, and uh, and this is this is big news. It is it, it's it's big news. It's it's tragic news. But I mean, my hope and my prayer is always that from this kind of split, from this kind of tragedy, you know, good can come of it. God can work through this and God can bring out a, a, a very miraculous resolution. And I, I really think that this might be the type of event that starts to lead the Orthodox back closer to communion with the Roman Catholic Church, really opens them up to, I know people don't like to use the word dialogue or they think it's kind of a dirty word, but to, right. to talk, to sit down at the table and be like, what are the real disagreements here? You know, brush away history, brush away politics, brush away all, you know, sort of bad hurt feelings on both sides of the table and say, what do we need to do to restore communion now and to really be one holy Catholic and apostolic church as Christ intended? Well, we will wait and see, possibly not in our lifetimes, Gabe, but uh, we, we hope so. 
we will see. <laughs> see. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for uh, spending it with me and, and sharing it with the listeners as well. Um, I've, I've learned a lot. I learned a lot every time I, I chat with you about this. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And every time I talk with you, I go, huh, I know less than I thought I did even at the beginning. So thanks for that. <laughs> You're absolutely welcome, Andrew. I'm more than happy to educate you anytime. And I know you are. All right. Thanks for your time. We'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast so that more people can hear the beauty and truth of traditional Catholicism. For more news, resources, and updates, you can visit the U.S. District website at sspx.org or the English news website of the Society at fsspx.news.